everybody, I'm Robert Cannon, and this is Figure of Speech, a podcast dedicated to the impact of forensics. Episode 20, Ryan Yu. Ryan, welcome in. Nice to have you, buddy. Thanks for having me here, Robert. Yeah. Ryan, uh, you competed. Do you know what years you competed? Uh, just in my eighth grade year. I was kind of... Only eighth grade? Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> well, you were, like, bouncing around in your seventh grade year, too. Yeah, you? I did one tournament in seventh grade, and then stuff just got really busy where speech and debate, I couldn't really take it too seriously. But in my eighth grade year, I said, okay, this is something that I enjoy. This is something that I don't want to make time for, and this is something where I just want to see where it takes me. And you're a college sophomore now? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And what's really interesting about that is uh, you skipped high school. You went straight from middle school into into college, Yeah. part of the Baby Genius program at Cal State LA. And uh, we're going to get into all of that. But I want to talk, first of all, uh, how did you get involved in speech and debate? What was your beginning like? So my sister originally came to Wilshire starting, uh, she, my mom wanted her to do speech and debate, and my sister was more of an interpretation type of person, but my sister thought that speech and debate wasn't really practical for her, beats me why she thought that, and she also had a lot of sports activities, primarily synchronized swimming that she was doing, mm-hmm. and that kind of got in the way, so she stopped, but she had, she had competed in speech uh, long enough for me to figure out that I kind of wanted to get in on the fun. I originally started off with debate, but I switched over to the speech side because I just found the speech side more appealing. Do you remember what your first competition, what event you were doing in your first uh, competition? It was impromptu. Impromptu. How'd you do? Uh, not well. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, when you came in doing doing speech, that must have been somewhat awkward because your your sister kind of knew more about it than you did. She's younger than you. Was that Was there a learning curve there? I actually never considered that fact, that it was really awkward. Mm-hmm. The reason being that she never really took it seriously. And I do remember helping her once for a tournament, but that was about it. Outside of that, she didn't really talk about speech and debate too much at home. Mm-hmm. And so when I first got into it, I was like, what's, what's new? My sister didn't really teach me anything. She didn't show me anything. It was just more so me trying to figure stuff out on my own. What I'm really interested in is uh, is you doing Congress. Now, when did that take place? Like, you you eventually started doing Congress in your eighth grade year. Yeah. How did that happen? So what I remember about getting involved was, first of all, I started off in kind of limited prep events, impromptu. Mm-hmm. I was okay at impromptu. I wasn't great, but it was something that I enjoyed, and impromptu has been an event I've been keeping in the back burner. I like doing um, platform speeches, like informative. Uh, I remember the first competition I broke was in an informative event. Mm-hmm. Um, I found OO fun to do as well. But What I was c- your topic for the OO event? Uh, it was uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. It's mm-hmm. kind of this brain disease where you get it from repeat- repetitive head trauma. So football so, players yeah, like, and boxers, yeah, people who th- those types of have people. concussions and repeated mm-hmm. head blows. Yeah. That was that your. I'm sorry, I said OO. Was that your OO topic or your informative it was, topic? It was both. I turned, I turned, <laughs> it, I turned it into. I turned it from an informative into an OO. And how did that that fared fairly well for you? Yeah, I broke. I don't actually remember which tournaments I broke with that okay. speech in, but I do remember. Oh yeah, I think it was Orders Cup I broke in with that OO. So. so how did? What was the inspiration for that as a topic? Where did you hear about that? So in sixth grade, I was in math, and because I was on this accelerated math class, and one day all the eighth graders were out doing something, and so there was three seventh graders and one sixth grader, and my 
teacher said, hey, let's watch a movie. And so we watched Concussion. Mm. And that kind of sparked, and because I watched a lot of football at the time, that kind of sparked my interest in this disease. Where the uh, Mike Webster, he was the center for the Pittsburgh Steelers during their uh, during un- under Terry Bradshaw, mm-hmm. he kind of died through all these strange, weird ways. Like he'd yank his teeth out one by one and super glue them back in. That, no normal person does that. And then that kind of piqued my interest with it, with CTE. Right. And I started researching it more, looking into its history. That sort of stuff. Did you ever? I'm not sure how, how big of a football fan you are. There's a documentary that came out recently about Aaron Hernandez, who uh, had committed a few different murders, and one of the conclusions that they drew was that maybe he had CTE, and, um, and that might have impacted his decision making, his impulsiveness. And they talked about some of the other players, people that had committed suicide, and uh, a lot of them had committed suicide by shooting themselves in the in the heart so that their brains could be studied kind of knowing themselves that something must be wrong with their brains. And, um, that's an interesting topic. I think you're a little bit of ahead of your, ahead of your time, uh, in terms of that being discussed, but it's starting to become, become more and more discussed. And it was, it was a timely topic. I guess you have nothing to say about that, but, uh, <laughs> so, all right, you do OO, you do informative, mm-hmm. same topic. And then, so how does that lead into Congress? I found out about Congress through just attending a class of Congress, and I was really interested because the first resolution we're talking about involved plastic bags, <laughs> uh, and um, a re- it was a resolution like abolishing to ban- plastic yeah. bags. And there was, I forgot who it was, but someone came up and said that plastic bags could be burned for energy, and I was really curious about that. And then that kind of started, and then so I did more research about that and found out it was true. I forgot which country it was in. But what happened was that I guess that kind that sparked my interest in Congress, and it turned it from just some another debate event into something where, oh, these sometimes you can bring up these really unique solutions where your opponents really don't have a solution uh, or an answer to, and while in debate those things are more researched because in Congress you're, you're you're only you're limited to three minutes of speaking time, and I just found that really interesting that you don't you don't have to memorize prepared speeches and talk for talk at the speed of sound or anything right but you could it was it was like a speech just three minutes and it was just on it and the topic just changed every single round so were there some uh, some topics that you had received that still stick out to you as being memorable something that's um something i I guess that really stuck with you um, I remember the f- uh, a bill I submitted to uh, for one of the Congress tournaments was a bill to legalize youth, uh, physician-assisted suicide, and that one I really enjoyed doing, uh, mostly because it was kind of a topic where I knew somewhat about it, but through researching it and trying to cl- trying to write an authorship speech or the first affirmative speech on it, I kind of learned more and more about affir- uh, about assist- physician-assisted suicide, the pros, the cons, the arguments of each side. That that res- that bill sticks out pretty clearly. Another one. Did was, you have solid foundational uh, ideas about that before that that bill came along? No, I didn't. And Do you feel like Congress? I'm sorry to cut you off. I, I just okay. you're answering the question. <laughs> I just jumped right in. Do you feel like Congress has helped shape your political beliefs? Mm. Like the activity of Congress. Honestly, not really. Hmm. Be- I don't know why, but um, I, I do remember that in tournaments in, involving Congress, I always prepped both sides, and I would all, uh, some other 
competitor would always ask, okay, how many people are doing AF? How many people are doing NEG? I would always take the side with the least amount of people, with the lesser amount of people, because it would allow me to rack up more speeches and thus give me a chance at a higher rank, which is something that you suggested to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but rather than, uh, let me, I guess, refine my question. Not necessarily that it, it, it changed your opinions about things, but maybe did any of these bills come along that caused you to consider an issue that you hadn't really considered before? I guess there was a bill regards to recidivism mm-hmm. and whether convicted fel- uh, con- in order to reduce recidivism, convic- convicted felons should be allowed to live together in society. And in exchange for that, the government would subsidize a portion of their rent. Originally, I thought that was just a terrible idea because you're releasing felons into society. And part of the bill was that they'd be released early, too. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no way. <laughs> this sounds like such a terrible idea on paper. But as I did more research, I was becoming to I was coming to conclusions saying, oh, maybe this isn't such a bad thing after all. Obviously, I prepared both sides of it, but I started leaning more towards uh, like prison. I started being considering more so like prison reform. Mm-hmm. And it's positive impacts rather than just seeing the negative side of letting prisoners out early or giving them leniency. Yeah, I always felt like something with Congress, like Congress kind of really does force you to have to think about a lot of issues that you wouldn't have otherwise considered, I think. Uh, You know, there's because people bring up these new ideas. I feel like most of the time when you speak about politics with people, you're talking about issues that have been talked to death, you know, and you have... Uh, your go-to issues uh, right now. You have Iraq, impeachment and, and and foreign you know, yeah. wars from you know from other countries like foreign policy, and you have these like go-to issues. And prison reform is kind of a go-to issue, but that's starting to get out there. And the idea of oh well, how do you feel about two prisoners living together and the government subsidizing their rent? What what are you talking about? That's so out there. But I think the event is really. Uh, interesting because it causes you to have to think about some of those issues. And exactly as you said, if you want to be competitive, you do need to research both sides. You do need to be able to speak on on both sides. Even if you don't want to say one of the sides, if you refuse to say one of those sides, maybe you're morally opposed to it, you still have to, you have to understand what the other side is going to say. Yeah, and I would say that was one of the greatest benefits of Congress is the fact that uh, unlike uh, some other forms of debate, I kind of see debate like Lincoln Douglas just you pull you sometimes need to pull out these really obscure facts in order to win mm-hmm. that your opponent just has no response to Co- what I like about Congress is because the speaking time is limited to three minutes you have to get all your main points across and there's really not enough time for you to throw in something really obscure and that's sort of knowing the main points and the counter arguments to it is kind of what allowed me just to become a much better uh, in po- especially in politics just a much better just yeah, just a better debater in politics. Just in under, yeah. understanding it and being able to explain both sides. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, we kind of interrupted your journey here. So uh-huh. talk us back through it. You're you're now in eighth grade. You're doing competitions. Mm-hmm. You go to Congress. Your first Congress competition. How do you do in your first Congress competition? I didn't break in my first Congress competition. I think yeah, it was because I got too nervous and. My first round, the judges ranked me really low, mm-hmm. simply because I wasn't. I was. I was looking. I was looking down at my feet. I was swaying. I was fidgeting. I was using so many filler words. My points, they were 
they were okay. They weren't anything unique. And because I was so late in the speaking order, mm-hmm. the judges were kind of tired of all these stale. You kind of got points. lost in the yeah. shuffle. And that's what contributed to my low ranking. My second and third rounds, I did slightly better. Got middle of the pack, maybe like fifth place at most. But uh, that, w- but I never got discouraged from ranking so lo- low in any tournament. Really, I just took it as, more so as a learning experience. And because my parents weren't one of those parents where, oh, you have to get trophies, you have to get, you have to break, you have to do this, you have to do that. I, f- I was free. I-, I found myself free to look into events where that kind of really piqued my interest, and that's sort of how I got into Congress. You, I, you brought up your parents. I'm, I'm glad you brought up your parents because I've always kind of. Uh, while I don't have a close relationship with your parents, and and maybe I think I've met them a couple of times, maybe maybe not even that, maybe not even that. Uh, I have a lot of respect for them, and I that respect was created when you were in seventh grade because you came in one time, and I remember you saying, I remember you being in seventh grade, I remember you saying something like you had just caught the bus or caught the train or something like that here, and I said, oh, did your parents ride with you? And you said, no, no, I by myself. And I started to realize that after class, you'd hop on the bus and you'd make your way home. And I was like, dude, that's awesome. Like, what what parent turns their kid loose in Los Angeles and just says, go, figure it out, ride the bus, you know? And if you get lost, figure your way out. And there's a lot of character building in that. And it, it's also, it's kind of scary. Uh, and, and you and I have had private conversations about this kind of thing before where, I think some people would think, oh, well, you're kind of robbing them of their chance to be young and innocent and have fun. No, no, you are still young and innocent. You're silly with your friends and all that stuff. You can have those moments, but you also have the responsibility and and understanding of how to take care of yourself. And I think that really, it translates into Congress really well. And I I knew that you were cut of a different cloth when you were telling me some of that. And I was going, this kid's different than a lot of the others. Do you care to speak about that? Just even transportation of yourself? Like, how does that impact you? So the way that it started off late in sixth grade where my mom started having... It started, yeah, it started off in sixth grade where I want, I begged to my parents, please, please, please let me walk home from school like every Friday. I promise my backpack won't be too heavy. I promise I'll get all my schoolwork done beforehand so I'm not carrying 14 different textbooks. They said... Okay, but first you have to guarantee that you learned us, you learned all the major streets in our area. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, that, fine. That's if that's what it takes for me to walk home and just get some fresh Why air. Why did you want to walk? I don't know. It's I mean, it was three miles, so it's not absurd, but it's not close by either. And it was just a form of exercise, and I just kind of wanted some freedom, mm. I guess. Yeah, freedom. Freedom is probably a, a big driving factor, and so my parents let me. I started walking home from school. And they saw me that they saw that I was walking home from school. I wasn't straying off to mm-hmm. get like candy or something. If I was straying off, I was straying off to the library or maybe to get a water or to stop to use the bathroom. And they said, "Oh, maybe you're you're ha- you're ready to handle this next layer of responsibility, just transporting yourself everywhere." So I said, "Okay." And start of seventh grade, my mom said, "Okay, look, I can't drive you from place to place, so you're gonna have to figure out how to get from." your middle school, which was in the Sherman Oaks area, to Koreatown. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) And so I did a lot of, I remember doing a lot of research the night before my first ride. Where does, I was trying to find the, just the shortest and the fastest route. Right. And I discovered a bus stop right in front of my school, which was really convenient for me. That left around 
half an hour after school ended, so I had some time. I had some time to kill with my friends, but and then I hop on. I get. I take the red line down from North Hollywood to Wilshire, Vermont. From and from there, I transfer to the purple line, take it all the way down to Wilshire Western, and then walk for some strange reason down <laughs> when there was a bus. I don't. You didn't I know. Yeah, I didn't know there was a bus, and I didn't know how frequently it ran, but. I mean, it was walking, and I wasn't going to If you miss that first bus outside your school, how long of a wait is that? Uh, I guess you never missed it. An hour. An hour. I missed it once, and that's just because I was, I, was, I was really lost that day. I was tired. I, f- I think I fell asleep at one point uh. while waiting, and, and when I woke up, I, was, I looked at my phone, and it said 3.50, and the bus was supposed to come at 3.30, and I was like, oh, snap, when's the next uh. one? 4.30, and I'm like, uh. oh, boy, I'm in for a long wait then. But I guess you're you're kind of right. Going on the subway taught me some sort of responsibility, and it also ta- it also taught me some sort of awareness that I never really would have gotten unless I was in a more dangerous environment. Yeah. Which my parents, my parents are not the type of parents where they're gonna let they're gonna say go and in, go into areas full of like viol- go into violent yeah. areas and try to find your well, way around there. So they're healthy, normal parents. Yeah. I mean, that's what most parents don't want for their kids. Yeah. Yeah, but my par- my friends always envied this degree of freedom I had, but I don't really think they ever realized that it came with some sort of responsibility on yeah, my right. part as well. Because it was my duty to make sure I came to classes on time. It was my, and on top of that, I still had to figure out a way to get all my schoolwork because I'd come home at nine, and no one wants to start their homework at nine, especially when they have to take a shower and all that. Yeah. So I had to figure out I had to figure out time management from there. And it, it just taught me a lot about what it means to, like, you know, grow up in a sense. Well, and also just kind of dealing with the homeless population yeah. and, and, you know, crazy people on the train or the bus or whatever. And yeah. Trying to deal with that's problematic. Yeah. I just learned, I just learned like, what to, what to do in certain circumstances. I do remember there, um, I do remember there are these, there are always these performers on the subway. And I always appreciate those because it's kind of a break from monotony. Yeah. And I always, if I can, I always try to give cash to them. But that's just that's just my sort of thing. Okay. So I, we we kind of dovetailed into your your <laughs> transportation, which I've I've always been fascinated by. But I think it actually does play into the character of who you are. And uh, and it, I'm not. I remember you kind of being interested in different events. I remember kind of pitching Congress to you and going, "This kid could do Congress, and I think he could do it really well." So you go to your first Congress tournament. You're you're not uh, a, an all star or anything like that. Walk us through what happens the rest of your your eighth grade year. How do you end up doing? How do you not necessarily like in terms of awards, although maybe awards, but just how do you feel like you did? Um, eighth grade year, I feel that in terms of speech and debate was really. I mean, I guess it's the only year I did speech and debate on a serious level. So, but I did learn a lot from it. And for me, it was more so about the learning process and kind of that failure of the first tournament taught me, okay, so this is what I should do. This is what I shouldn't do. And because I, I was so late in the speaking order that my points were just bland, I started learning, okay, so I should start getting myself up at the front in, or, uh, in the front of the speakers list so I can rack up speeches. Uh, recency will come into. Oh, recency will play a bigger factor and right. later down the tournament, and I just st- sort of took it from there. Eighth, uh, eight, I don't. Rem- I don't think I did another Congress and uh, tournament until SoCal Champs, mm-hmm. and SoCal Champs was where I really had fun with it. It it was only it was my second tournament of Congress, although I'd done numerous practice rounds within uh, within the academy, but it was only my second um, tournament, and I was kind of nervous. 
I remember coming out of my first tournament, uh, my first round, I was shaky, but I remember that as I walked out, I saw some of the other competitors looking at me, and they were just sh uh, shaking their heads like, dude, you did so well, I don't know how I'm going to beat that, and I was like, and I kind of gained confidence off that. Mm -hmm. um, later, looking at my ballots, I think I got first that round, but my second round, my second round, something happened, or maybe I got overconfident, didn't do as well. Third round, scaled it back. Um, but third round really shook me up because I, that was a because I knew the final the third round and the final round, those were bills that, that I weren't really I wasn't really well versed in I didn't really know the arguments too well so I decided hey let's take this PO thing a shot, and let's win it win a cool gavel. <laughs> I remember you saying that to me of like I am trying to be PO yeah. for final round. I'm like, All yeah. right, well, let's see what happens. All right, so what happens? Did you you ran for PO? No one else wanted PO because <laughs> it's PO. Yeah. The thing about Congress and PO, I'm sure you already know this, but they their job is just so different that judges can't really rank them on the same as other Congress speakers. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I've only seen a judge give one first place to a PO ever, mm -hmm. but that's just really rare. And it was only that one judge. Most judges don't even rank the PO or just automatically give them last place simply because how do you judge this guy's speaking ability when right. – his job is supposed to be moderating. It's just so different. Yeah, and you have to do some sort of magical math yeah. of trying to figure out, well, you're doing this job, everybody else is doing another job. How do you how do you stack them together? And I, I think that can be difficult, difficult for a lot of judges. Personally, I like to rank the PO. I think the PO is involved, and I feel like they deserve a rank. But I do understand where some judges get off on not ranking them. Yeah, in that final round, I read one of my ballots, and one of the judges gave me fourth place. And I was like, fourth place for just sitting over the debate and moderating it? Wow. I, I got last place in the tournament because the other two <laughs> judges were like, this guy's the PO. He, I don't really know how well he would be as a speaker. So they just decided to give me last place. But fourth place, I, I was really shocked by wow. that. And I was like, wow. I was just... That was my mind was blown there, and when the next tournament came for Orders Cup, I wanted to do PO again, but I, 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 the first time I, that was the first time I did multiple events and actually broken multiple events, yeah. and so uh, I had to run to my, I, I ran late to the Congress round and didn't have a chance to run for PO, but still, Congress was still very fun. So when you're done with your eighth grade year mm -hmm. and you move on, mm -hmm. you decide to go to Cal State LA, mm -hmm. and I'm correct on that, right? Yeah. And then you you join this the program. The official name for the program, the nickname is Baby Geniuses, but that's not the official name. That's what's the nickname you give it. Wow, that's what other people have called it too. But what's the uh, what's the, the what's the official name for it? So the official name is the Early Entrance Program. Right. Um. There's what it does is it's a one way pathway for kids to skip high school essentially, uh, and, and go straight into their undergraduate year. Skip parts of high school or high school in its entirety, like I did. So technically, until I get my undergraduate degree, I'm a high school dropout, <laughs> which is really funny. When you do those surveys that ask how smart are you, what was your last level of education, you always have to put high school dropout, and it's just because I mean, it's the most accurate thing they've got, and so I just always find that kind of amusing. Saying, "Oh, hi, I'm a high school dropout. I'm also enrolled in Cal State LA as yeah. a sophomore." At, uh, uh, for an undergraduate degree in political and you're, science. And you're what, 16 years old now? I turned 16 in... That's okay. It's soon, right? 10 days, 10 roughly. days, all right. Nine days, I don't know. So you're now 15 years old. You're a sophomore in college. Mm -hmm. uh, what's that like? And I, I, I understand that you were starting to get involved in the speech program there. 
Yeah. So uh, tell me what the whole experience is like and uh, and then what little bit you had involved with the speech team. So the early entrance program, I guess I should start off by giving a simple explanation on how it worked. So the way it works is that, first of all, you have to take the SAT or the ACT score, qualifying score. I mean, it's not that high. I, I, I took it. I passed. I'm sure most people could do it because literally 95% of the students that are smarter than I am. After you take the SAT. that 5%, man. <laughs> They're so dumb. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> so <laughs> after you take the SAT or the ACT and get your qualifying scores, you have to send them into the uh, office for uh, the early entrance program. They analyze it along with some background applications. There they see whether or not, they, there they decide whether or not you'll, you'll be fit for an interview with the director. Almost everyone passes this stage. So you, talk, you, you have an interview with the director, your parents also get interviewed, and then you get a tour of the campus just to see what it's like. Um, from there, you have to fill out another application packet stating you're in um, this one for a summer <laughs> program. There's a lot of so a lot of applications. Yeah. And then once you finish that and you get accepted into the summer program, which most everyone gets accepted to as well, uh, this is where the real test is. You get six weeks. You take three, not necessarily university. You take them at a university level course. You take three university courses. You don't get credit for them, but they're taught by uh, uh, by professors who would teach it as if it was in any other normal class. Okay. Are they just teaching only the, this program, yeah. the early entrance program? Well, for this, they, they, they might Are there college students in there too? Uh, just, just, the student, just the applicants. And okay. they might teach other students uh, in other classes, but this one is all just uh, for the early entrance program applicants. Mm-hmm. And you hang out with the other applicants. You have uh, students who act as mentors. You have to go through several different interviews, which the interviews were easy for me because speech and debate right there you go and i was actually i remember one of my uh I, I remember sitting down for an interview uh with the with the interim director and he said wow you're really well spoken and my dad said no 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 he's just deceiving you don't don't believe a single thing this kid says <laughs> i was like do you want to sabotage dad, why are you throwing me under the yeah. bus anyway so after you go through the application after you go through the summer program there are the, the, mentor, the mentors, which are the current students within the program. They, they gather together along with the administrators and decide whether or not you're a good fit for the program. Mm-hmm. And somehow I got through. Apparently, I was one of the better candidates, which really surprised me. Great. And from there, the first semester, all your classes are cohorted with the exception of math. If you're, if you're a baby genius there, too, you move on mm. to different math levels. Like, I remember there was this one girl who was 12, and she just jumped straight to like calculus and i was like how 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 <laughs> but and then uh all your classes are cohorted for the first semester so yeah. you're not taking them with university students you're taking them with other people you've known and have already had time to develop a connection with over the summer this this is to prevent some of the parent worries saying oh i'm too worried about my my 13 year old kid being in a class with a senior yeah it's with to a, ask which a, those 21 year old yeah um the second semester it gets a little more varied because everyone has different majors, so everyone has different science classes they need to take. So the science classes are varied, and you get some variance within the schedules too, like the engineering majors and the computer science and so those things I can't do. They take a separate English course than the rest of us. But aside from that, you're pretty much kept together as well. Second year, they'd say, okay, you're a second year. You're free. Go you're determine. Yeah. And from there on, you have to determine your own schedule and stuff like that. How do you feel 
or do you feel that speech impacted your ability in those classes? Like, do you, do you feel like there was a lot that you had learned from the speech community that, that played out in college? So I have a funny story about this. One of the general education requirements within Cal State LA is to take a speech course, which is supplemented by one of the honors college courses, because if you're an early entrance program student, you become a member of the honors college. Okay. And so one of the course, it's, uh, it was a communications course. And they showed your speech of nationals where you talk they about... They show my speech? Yeah. Where <laughs> the, the, professor, the professor said, okay, now this was from our former Cal State LA alumni who uh, gave a speech at nationals, <laughs> won, the, won a championship. And I was like, huh. Did you tell me like this? Guy I didn't I know. know this. I don't, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but he sh- uh, she sh- my professor showed the speech up on the board. And I was just laughing for the entirety of the speech. And then my professor said, okay, now, what's one thing you learned? And I said, I didn't know my speech coach had hair. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I better run really quickly after this. But, and then everyone, was, everyone in the class was just looking at me and said, that's your speech coach? And I was like, yeah. And I said, oh, that explains where you came from. Okay. And that class was a breeze Yeah. because I, had, I was already familiar with uh, ethos, pathos, logos, all that. Mm-hmm jazz uh i was comfortable i was comfortable with I, I had good eye contact which was something i had to fix up um during my time here at wilshire i was able to pace myself i wasn't rushing i knew roughly how long it was without a clock which was something my peers all had to get used to but and because they my peers knew me as someone who was kind of like a great speaker great speaker by their standards mm-hmm. uh i started help, helping them prepare a lot for their speeches they started coming up to me saying hey hey can you watch my speech can you give me feedback and i was like i was like sure not a problem and you know that's something that uh you know you start to refine your skills even more when yeah. you start teaching it yeah and right around that same time i started bringing you back to wilshire to help me kind of co-teach congress yeah. to some other students that were yeah. hanging around and it was weird there were some times where we had it was like uh the, the class started out fairly big, but people started dropping yeah. by the wayside, and we were left with one student. And there would be times where there'd be like you, me, and maybe another teacher, and only one student. It'd yeah. be like three teachers and one student, uh, which is a crazy ratio. Yeah. But I feel like we did some really good work, and we made some impact on some of those students. Yeah. And you really, really refined, I think, some of the stuff that maybe you didn't have a chance to refine when you were in eighth grade. And then you come back, um, you know, that year and, and the next year, you know, to be a parliamentarian at tournaments. Yeah. So what's that process like for you? Honestly, the parliamentarian process, it's kind of, if you're not POing, it's kind of boring mm-hmm. because there's not much, I mean, unless it's an absolutely fresh, it's, it's, unless the presiding officer is someone fresh who's never done it before, like they've never practiced it before, then it becomes kind of interesting because you have to walk them through. And that kind of tests your own knowledge, but I find that process really interesting. Like the last tournament I uh, I was a P, uh, parliamentarian at, uh, one of the one of the girls didn't do too well in her first round, so she said, "Okay, I'm gonna run for PO." No one else ran against her, and she was really confused in her first round. And I was like, and she she had to ask me a lot for help, and that kind of tested my own knowledge because I hadn't, I I I really hadn't I I had served as a PO before, but I really didn't know how to explain it. And so it tested my explanation ability, which now I know how to explain explain a new uh, so, someone new to Congress. I would explain. I, I I'm now comfortable, at least more comfortable than I was then, of explaining how to serve as a presiding officer. Mm. 
And I, uh, back to your point on refining my ability within Congress after, I feel that I've learned a, actually a lot more about just Congress and some tactics about Congress after I left. Like one of the things that you could do in Congress is that there's a strict rule that says that you have to go from affirmative to negation to affirmative to negation. I learned that it was almost never, I didn't learn this until afterwards, but I learned that it was never in my best interest to vote to suspend that rule because that rule made it so that if I was the only person on neg, everyone was on AF and everyone kept on racking up speeches. Um, I would keep on racking up speeches, not them, but they couldn't speak as much. Mm-hmm. And, that, and I always learned to vote against that rule mm-hmm. unless the chambers were so evenly divided, like 6-5. And even then I'd still vote no almost always. So you're a, a big advocate of not suspending that rule yeah. most of the time. For my own benefit. Well, yeah. Or yeah. anybody who wants to yeah. score more speeches if you're yeah. willing to switch to the opposite side. Have there been some resolutions that you've dealt with, um, either as a competitor or as a parliamentarian, that you felt like uh, maybe... I mean, Did you ever find yourself at a crossroads morally? Like, uh, I don't really... I don't really agree with this bill at all, but in order for me to score more speeches, I think I'm going to have to take a side that I don't necessarily agree with. I guess it wouldn't apply to you as a parliamentarian, but I guess yeah. as a competitor. Um, there was one experience of this. I don't remember what the bill was, and I don't remember too much of what happened, but I, I don't really... I, I do know I did it at least once, and that, but I don't really remember too, too much specifics, and I'm sorry about that, mm-hmm. but... Normally, I uh, normally some, some most of these bills are something like abolish the penny or plastic bags or you know the, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the one resolution I would say I got the clo- I remember and I got the closest to, but I was the parliamentarian, was one regarding um, building uh, the Me- uh, the Mex- the the wall that Trump was propo- is proposing between uh, Mexico and America along the southern border. I was uh, I was like, okay, this. I, I would probably not prepare, I would probably prepare both sides for this but I would probably only speak on the negation side simply because you know there's too much of a conflict where I really I don't really think I can effectively argue but I could probably destroy the um, affirmation in just questioning but unfortunately I wasn't a competitor I was parliamentarian so right couldn't really do that do you ever get jealous like as your parliamentarian because you're you're still so close to the activity I wonder if they're kind of like man I'd love to have this bill and be able to discuss some oh, of the yeah. stuff i get really get jealous <laughs> I, I i sometimes wish that i could just go back to being a, like sometimes one of the things i miss about speech and debate and just regret not go uh, about not going to high school is the fact that i miss out on these competitions right and it's kind uh, honestly i sometimes i do get ticked off when i'm not preside when i'm not the po as the parliamentarian because I really can't do anything, mm-hmm. and I just get I get impatient. I start to fidget. I I do. I I remember there was this one tournament where I just played on my phone the entire round mm. because I was just so bored. And I I was like, and and then to make matters worse, there was this one um, uh, competitor who kept saying that's unconstitutional, that's unconstitutional. I'm like, no, it's not. But no one could find a refutation to his arguments, and he ended up. I think he en- he ended up breaking and getting a pretty high score. As a parliamentarian, when you're not POing, do you get involved in most of the discussions, or do you no. just sit back and wait for them to ask you? I sit. Back, the thing is, I the way I've viewed parliamentarian is your. It's not your job to talk for the speakers in terms of their points. It's your job to explain to the presiding officer the rules and to the chamber if they have any other questions about the rules that right. the presiding officers, you know, can answer. But 
I have gotten I have gotten very frustrated at some tournaments where I just hear someone say something that's utterly wrong, and I know it because you know I've studied the Constitution to a varying extent. While while some some of the speakers were in like sixth seventh grade, I wouldn't expect them to know what the the powers granted to Congress are. I mean, maybe I would, but I didn't know them when I was in seventh grade, so I'm not going to hold it against them. But when someone says something utterly wrong and says that's unconstitutional, and it specifically says. Con- Do you think they say that because they've heard other people say that yeah. about other things? Like they've heard yeah. parents and teachers saying, oh, that's unconstitutional. Yeah, and it's like, I think that's- you're racist. That's unconstitutional. <laughs> uh, actually, you can believe what you want to believe. Yeah. Uh, we don't like it, but, you know, that kind of thing. Like they just hear that, that phrase being thrown around all the time that it's constitutional, uh, unconstitutional, and they just repeat it ad nauseum. Yeah, that's kind of one of the things I found infuriating was just... I was, I was I was thinking, how do I get this person? Just how do I talk to them and say, no, it's not, no, it's not, and you can't start because against more prepared competitors, like if 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 he was competing against me, I would probably if I heard that one round, and I didn't have a counter argument to that. The next round, I'm sure I'd just be scrolling on my phone, typing, uh, looking up the next bill and it's and the constitutional provisions related to it. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I can't do that because you know I'm a That's parliamentarian. Not, not who you are. What's one of the biggest challenges you've had as a parliamentarian? I, I staying focused when you have nothing to do because oh, wow. not having nothing to do is harder than having a lot of things to do. Yeah, and at least in my opinion, because this truth that time just time just freezes when you have nothing to do, and it just gets so boring that literally banging your head against the wall becomes more entertaining. I hope not, literally. I hope you're not in the, the side of the room just, like, banging your head against the wall going, oh, no. yeah, I just have nothing else to do. No. Um, wow, yeah, so that's a good point. Yeah, it's just the monotony yeah. of, of sitting in there. And sometimes, like, I'm kind of hesitant. Like, when you ask me, oh, can you serve as parliamentarian, I'm like, especially if it's a tournament, especially for the last tournament, I was not doing anything. I'm kind of hesitant. But then I always remember, oh, wait, most of these people don't know how to serve as PO, so I'm probably going to be anyways and so yeah. i'm gonna have an active role it's like yeah sure and some people who do know how to do it don't want to do it yeah you know for strategic purposes as yeah. well cool well ryan the next part of this podcast is a part where i ask you a few questions uh, i ask everybody 10 questions that comes on the show uh-huh. and uh i'm gonna ask you the, our survey questions so this is i call the final round welcome to it question number one ryan were you superstitious in speech no, I wouldn't say I was superstitious. And the reason is because I knew that whatever happened was not – it was partially in the control – it was partially in the hands of other competitors because if someone just speaks better than you, you, you really have no control over that. Mm-hmm. If someone's just naturally a better speaker, there's nothing you can do. But I've always viewed as what happens in a tournament is 5% of that and 95% of things that – 90% of things you can control and just 5% just random chance where neither you nor your competitor sees it coming. And I've always tried to focus on improving that 90% as much as I could and not really worrying about the other 10% and what happened. I always rec- I recognized that speech, my speech ballots were a result of some things that I did, I did well where I messed up. And I've always viewed it as that way rather than just some superstitious thing of, oh, if you don't knock on wood, then you'll get 
fifth place and you won't break and then your parents will be disappointed at you. I like how you go to the parents disappointed in you angle very quickly. Uh, Asian culture. <laughs> you said it, not me. Uh, I, I had heard it explained this way one time and it always kind of stayed with me that there's three things that happen in the round. What you do, what your judge does or thinks, and then what the other competitors do. And you can only control one of those three. Yeah. And so you kind of have to let the others go. You can't control what the judge thinks. You can't yeah. control what the other competitors are going to do. But you can control you, and you got to focus on that. And so many people go into the round, and they're going, well, that judge didn't da 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 Okay, you don't have control over that judge, but you do have an effect on that judge. And, you know, if your judge is, uh, you know, you were talking about, like, the, the percentages of, of, like, of the impact that you would make on a lot of them. And I think people lose sight of, well, then if your judge isn't paying attention, maybe you should have been more entertaining. And yeah. they want to blame the judge, but they're not willing to kind of introspect and, and look at themselves and, and go, man, it should have been more entertaining or thought-provoking or something different, you know? Yeah. Okay, question number two. Who is the competitor you most admired? Uh, the competitor I most admired? Uh, that's a tough question. Probably one, it was probably, it's, if there was a type of competitor, I don't, I don't know if this, comp I'm sure this competitor exists. I'm, I don't know, I think the closest might be Alex Lee. But just someone who can do, uh, just do all the events and excel at all of them. And I've always kind of, I've always kind of like, sort of envied that because I, I, there was this one tournament where I remember you telling me, "Hey, you want to do, you want to do storytelling?" <laughs> Never done an interp in my life before. I was like, "Sure, let's just see what happens." That tournament was really hilarious. I went four five five, and the four was because someone didn't show up to the round. <laughs> And I was like, well, I know not to do an interp again or, or storytelling. Yeah, but even maybe you should maybe I would argue maybe you should be doing more yeah. interps, you know, because your scores are four, five, five. <laughs> um but you have a good head on your shoulders. It seems like you took that well, right? Yeah. You're not going home going, Oh, I'm so awful. You're going, Well, that was an experience. Yeah. And, and that's sort that's of fun. And that's sort of like ideal I like sort of like Alex, I know he does deck. I don't really know if he does any other uh, not deck duo. I don't know really know if he does other events, but the fact that Interp he events, you mean? yeah yeah but the fact that he excels in like oos and just in, uh, impromptu in general i've uh as w and even debate it's just wow how do you do all of this mm -hmm. and that's always something that i've kind of wondered because i've uh, i've mostly been limited prep platform and really couldn't do much of anything else yeah and even at limited prep i was not that good at it in my opinion question number uh three what's the most memorable speech or debate you've seen the most memorable speech or debate involving me or just in general? Anything. What's the most memorable? Uh, probably. I mean, I. That's 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 a tough one. I think the most memorable is probably the informative with CTE that I broke in mm -hmm. because that was my that was the first time I broke in just any event in general. It was also my second overall tournament, and be, the first one just. First one, I, I, I just didn't really do well. That's my first tournament. I was just let it slide. But it was also my first tournament within a year. And so I was kind of, I, I wasn't fresh. I was kind of stale. And, I was, and, I, and somehow I managed to break. And I was like, oh, wow. And so I started to. And oh, the, wow. Yeah. And the final, the final round, I, I didn't do too well in it. I think I got ninth place out of, out of all 11 people who broke. Mm -hmm. But 
I enjoyed it, and that's probably the reason why I remember it the most, was because it was one of the most fun events. It was one of the most fun rounds I remember doing it. Everyone, everyone was really laid back, and I didn't, I, and it didn't take, until I broke, I didn't, I didn't know that that was an abnormality where people are laid back. Normally people are high strung during the final round, Mm -hmm. but everyone was just so laid back. It created such a casual atmosphere that I was able to just relax, imbibe the atmosphere, and just enjoy it. All right. Question number four. How do you explain forensics to someone who's unfamiliar with it? I would explain it as kind of... I would Forensics, I would immediately say, no, it's not... You don't go and... You don't take a magnifying glass and just look for fingerprints. That's not what forensics is in this... At least not the way I'm involved in it. Yeah. Well, I mean, not, if... Well, maybe it is. <laughs> but uh, you're, not, home to you're not studying mom. blood splatter. Yeah. But... <laughs> I would, I would always explain forensics as sort of speech and debate where you're trying to persuade a judge on why you should win. Regardless if you're giving a speech, regardless of whether you're give, debating another opponent or not, you're trying to show why you're better than someone. But not necessarily also that. It's also your progression and development as a speaker itself because, quite frankly, public speaking is hard to learn. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would say that forensics is something where it teaches you a lifelong skill that you probably wouldn't be able to learn from anything else. That's probably how I would describe forensics. That's nice. Question number five. What was your most unusual inspiration for a speech? Uh, most unusual? Uh, Could be an argument that's used in Congress. Anything. Most unusual? I. It was probably... Was it that? Yeah, it was probably. I would say it's, it was re- referring back to the CTE informative and or, uh, OO speeches I did. Mm-hmm. It was probably that because that was the first. Because I, th- I always thought that these types of, I always thought that these types of inspirations for these types of platform speeches always just came when you were studying, studying, reading a book. You came across a term you didn't know. It came out in a movie, and that was just really appealing to me. And I was surprised at the fact that wow, you can find it. In it was movies. the Will Smith movie, yeah. right? Yeah, you can find it in movies. You don't have to pour through an encyclopedia looking for words that you don't understand. Yeah, sometimes that's it. some of the best yeah. inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. And that that just served as a surprise because at that time I was relatively new to informative, original, new to speech in general. And I just thought it was an event where nerds just study in books <laughs> looking for their topics. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that kind of... Sure. That kind of opened the doors to saying, hey, you can have a little bit of fun with uh-huh. speech and debate, and you can incorporate it into your other extracurricular activities, which was something that, for some reason, I never really recognized until I actually started competing in speech and debate. Huh. All right, question number six. Has a speech or debate ever caused you to change? Hmm. Kind of asked you about that earlier, sort of. We touched a little bit on this topic. Have you ever changed because of a speech? Either one that you performed, or maybe one that you've seen. Not in a sig- not not significantly. I would say maybe there were some minor minor changes they did, like well, the I, prison I, reform, for yeah, example. The, uh, oh yeah, right, that one. How did I forget that? <laughs> I don't know. We just talked about it. Yeah, I, I think the prison reform is probably the best example of that. But other than that, I don't really, I can't, none, none, none really come to mind immediately. But, yeah, the prison reform, just simply because of how, how much it opened my eyes to a new viewpoint. Hmm. Question number seven. What did you do with your rewards? Uh, they're, on my, they're on my shelf. 
and I, uh, unlike other people, it's just one shelf. And I, it's most, because I haven't, uh, because I didn't spend too much time, I only took it seriously for one year. I don't have a, an entire rack dedicated to all my medals and all my trophies. No, no, no. For me, it's just, I've got five trophies and a couple medals. And then the gavel I won from being the, the gavel is the best trophy. The gavel is my favorite trophy because I, I won it by something unique where no other, uh, maybe like three other people within Wilshire have done it. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was like, I'm, that was kind of like my I'm special trophy. And that's kind of, that's the trophy I value the most and it's something I look at every single day. So That's great. Question number eight. What speech skill do you use most often in your day-to-day life? Speech skill, huh? I think it would probably be eye con- just eye contact and knowing both sides of the argument. Eye contact is something that I've never really... I never really understood its purpose until I took speech and debate. And I learned that eye contact helps forge... Uh, it says it, it helps forge... It, uh, bond between you and your uh, between you and whoever you're speaking with mm-hmm. and when I talk with my friends I always look them in the eye uh, I always looking them in the eye because it shows them like look this matters to me and it should matter to you too because I'm taking the time just to have a conversation with you but not only that not only just to look at you take time out of my day just just looking at you looking at you and trying to make a point and as for research I mean I feel like that goes pretty obviously because I write a lot of papers you know, baby genius, in, <laughs> baby genius in college. I have to write papers. I have to. I have to always be familiar with both sides of the argument, and that's a skill that I think without speech and debate, I probably could have learned. Uh-huh. But I probably, I, sh- I sure would not have refined it as much without uh, if speech and debate weren't in my life. All right. Question number nine: Why didn't you quit? Why didn't I quit? Okay, so let's make this clear. I'm not. I'm not a spectacular competitor. The highest I've ever gotten was fourth place. The reason why I didn't quit was it was just too much fun for me to even consider quitting. It was like, should I quit? The-? No, 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 no. That wasn't even quitting. wasn't even a thought in my mind. Even when I, even after that five, five, four, five, five storytelling, um, shall we call it a fiasco? The back, the buckle, <laughs> the buckle, the buckle. Yeah. Even uh, even even with that though, I just had so much fun doing it that quitting would. And we can argue. We can certainly. I can certainly say that that was my worst tournament. But that even that my worst tournament was just that much fun. Where quitting never really. It never came into my mind. And I, I was not only was I having fun. I was learning a lot. Um, I was getting to meet new people, learn their learn their strategies, and that's kind of the reason why I didn't quit. I was learning too much, having too much fun. That just never crossed into my mind at all. Question number 10. What was the best speech advice you've ever received? So it was an, uh, I think it was an impromptu. It was just limited prep events in general. And the advice went something along the lines of know how much time you're burning without the clock. I think it was you who told me this. It sounds, it sounds, and even if you didn't, it sounds like something you'd tell me. But the reason why I found this so helpful was because in terms of future presentations, where I, I was supposed to give presentations in class under time pressure, mm-hmm. and my group members didn't really know what they were doing. Typical group members, um, I knew I knew how much time I had. I knew how much time I had left, 
and it was sort of something that something that never really left me like even to this day when i'm on a camping trip and i don't have my phone readily available mm-hmm. people ask oh how many and people ask me oh how many minutes do you think it was since last time i say i give an i give a ballpark estimate and it turns out my estimates are actually correct and it's not only a useful speech skill but a useful practical skill and just to keep time just to keep track of time yeah, I think especially when you're giving a speech, there's something to that. that uh, time just seems to melt and people get so excited and they're nervous and they're, they're not really focusing. I, I was talking to some friends recently uh, about the Academy Awards uh, this year and you watch a lot of these speeches and everyone was, they're given 45 seconds to say thank you and they inevitably take much longer than that, almost all of them, and they don't have in their mind a frame of how long all this is taking. And it's because they're very excited but they're also not rehearsing. You can tell that these it, this is a very important moment in these people's lives, but they're not rehearsing for it. And they're just getting up there hoping to wing it, which is an awful strategy. And it's everything, you know, when I, when I see that happening, I'm just going, that's everything I deal with on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> and I'm begging people to not do. Uh, you know, you watch Renee Zellweger. She won for Best Actress mm-hmm. uh, this year. And her speech was riddled with filler words of um, 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 um. It, it, there were so many of them. And I'm going... Just a couple rehearsals would have really cut down on this. It doesn't even need to be perfect, you know, but it could be so much smoother, so yeah. much better. And I was talking to them about how in previous years they'll yell at, you know, the, the, the music. They'll play them off, right? Mm-hmm. So after uh, if they take too long, the orchestra <laughs> will start playing the music. And I'm like, okay, it's time for you to leave. And they'll be like, no, 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 I'm not done, and start yelling at the orchestra. <laughs> uh, but that's really rude to do. You yeah. haven't rehearsed your speech and and while you're speaking you haven't kept track of how much time you're burning and you haven't realized hey you're taking a long time here and you're blaming everybody else like they're the bad guy for playing you off the stage but you're the, you're the jerk you're the one that yeah. hasn't done the the prep and and just the the foresight of knowing what to talk about i remember i got kind of annoyed at one of my one of my professors because she was just taking too long mm-hmm. and she was just rambling off topic and when when we all started packing up she's like oh is it time to leave already wait wait wait, i'm not done and i was like come on you've just, you're a professor you've had this material planned out for since you wrote the syllabus you've probably taught the class before too so you should have a good idea but you don't and you 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 expect to keep us in a little bit longer no that's just not gonna fly by me yeah. and i'm like oh well maybe that's just something that will never leave me <laughs> Because I took speech and debate. Well, I think some people are more uh, prone to understanding that than others. But I like your idea. Know how much time you're burning. Ryan, this has been great, man. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on your life and Congress and speech and debate. It's been wonderful. No problem. Thanks for having me, If people want to find you, where can they find you? You got an Instagram handle, Twitter, anything like that? Uh... Um, I, have an, I have an Instagram. I don't. I changed the handle recently because I knew I was coming on here, and it was just a big joke. <laughs> uh, if I think it's Ryan.no.u because no you, it's just uh, something that I just say a lot to my friends. All right. Yeah. So Ryan.no.u. That sounds about right. All right. That's and my Instagram. That's Y O O, right? Yeah. Y O O. All right. And that's for us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle there is at Forensic Podcast. Ryan, thanks for so much for coming down. It's been really, really great. And this is Robert saying, so until next round, keep talking. And as Ryan Yu says, know how much time you're burning. I'm an actress.